Last week we started with understanding kind of a basic foundation of what worship is. And uh, in that we had some key takeaways. One was that worship is a wow. It's a wow, or it's a, it's a response to a wow. And we saw that we're all created to worship. We're going to worship something. But God took it to another level and he commanded us to worship him. And all of life can be a sacred act of worship. But the key takeaway was this, that our worship is, worship is our response to God's initiative. It's our response to God's initiative. And you saw that we started with a hashtag before the words, this is worship, very specifically because we wanted to begin a social media campaign. So we want to continue that today. If you want to post this quote, worship is our response to God's initiative. Here's the cool thing. Many of you have been posting throughout the week moments of worship or ideas or inspirations about worship. And on Twitter alone, the hashtag this is worship has reached 80,000 people, over 80,000 people. Isn't that amazing? How cool is that? So I want you guys to continue the momentum, uh, tweet something today throughout the week, because this is a great way for us to reach the triangle. So today, we're going to talk a little bit more about what we typically think of as worship, what we do when we gather together, what we do when we sing. I mean, why do we do what we do? Why do we sing? Now, maybe you grew up in church. Maybe you've been a Christ follower for many years, and you grew up in church, and you saw the musical styles go from an organ to choirs, uh, singing hymns, and then singing praise courses. You saw technology change from using a songbook or a hymnal to overhead transparencies. Remember those? Or now we have video screens. We've got lights. We've got electric guitars. And if you love music or you love singing, maybe this is your favorite part of the service. But maybe that's not you. Maybe for you, the thought of opening up your mouth and croaking out a tune freaks you out. I mean, maybe singing is not your thing, so you intentionally plan to arrive late to miss the concert, right? Because let's face it, you're here for the message anyway. And where else in society do groups of people get together and start singing songs? Around the water cooler at work? Hardly. You know, so maybe it strikes you as a bit odd, but I want to just make a case for music and for singing, for songs. How many of you this week, by a show of hands, you have heard music somewhere throughout the week since you've been at church? Not at church, but outside of church. Radio, yeah, look around. All of us, right? Why? Because music surrounds us. And we all have an inherent understanding that music is powerful. It's powerful. Napoleon Bonaparte said this over 200 years ago. He said, of all of the arts, music has the greatest influence over the emotions and is the art to which leaders should give great attention. Why should leaders give great attention to music? Because music has the power to unite us. I mean, you go to a huge stadium and we sing the national anthem, what happens? It feels like we are united in singing that national anthem. I don't know if you've ever watched a soccer game from England. I love soccer, and if you watch the Premier League in England, there's something that they do in their stadiums, and all of the fans will start swaying back and forth, and they'll start singing the song of their team. And why do they do that? Because music unites. It rallies them around a purpose. Music has the power to excite us. Music has the power to calm us. Anyone out there remember Muzak or elevator music? I'm glad we don't use that much anymore. You know, but I remember when I was younger, I was sitting in a, 
in the waiting room of a dentist. I was there with my mom, and I was kind of nervous because I, I was pretty sure that I had a lot of cavities. I had eaten a lot of candy and so on. So I'm sitting there, and there's this music, this cheesy music playing over the loudspeakers, apparently supposed to be calming me. But the whole time, in the background, I hear the dentist drill. You know, that was a fail. But music does have the power to calm us. Now, how many of you out there like epic movies? You like epic films? My family and I, we love epic movies like Lord of the Rings. My boys and I watch that over and over again. The Star Wars series or Narnia series or Braveheart. And can you imagine one of those epic films without music? Think of that for a second. Actually, I took my boys the other night to um, the new Thor movie. And as we were sitting there, there was this scene in the middle of the movie. And I won't tell you about it in case you're going to go and see it. But it's a powerful scene, but for about five to six minutes, there was no dialogue, no talking. But there was these powerful images on the screen, powerful scenes backed up by this beautiful music. And in that moment, I thought, if you were to take that music out of that, it wouldn't be near as powerful. Why? Because music evokes emotion. Music connects with our emotion. Music is powerful, and scientists have even found that Music, more than anything else, can affect our brain. And actually, doctors are now using music to treat and even reverse the effects of certain diseases like Parkinson's disease or stroke or other illnesses. Music is powerful. But then you take words and you add it to the music and you get what? You get a song. And we've all known the power of a song, whether it's a song we love or it's a song that's so annoying. It gets in our heads and it stays there. Now, there's this new song out that uh, my kids have been listening to on YouTube, and it's driving me crazy. What does the fox say? A ring, ding, ding, a ding, a ding, 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 ding. I was like, turn that off. It's so annoying. You've heard it, right? It's the craziest song, but, you know, I was, I was listening to that this week. I was kind of thinking about that song and looking at the words, and I was like, man, what kind of drugs were they on when they wrote that? But seriously, they were brilliant. The writers of that song were brilliant because they knew if it was just annoying enough, once or twice you hear that, locked. Try this with me. I'm going to sing a line and you finish the line. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Wow, that was in about five different keys, but... You get the point, right? I mean, for many of you, you probably haven't sung that song since your kids were toddlers, and maybe it's been many years, but you still remember that song. Why? Because songs get in our heads. Songs teach us things, like the ABC song, or the songs that we used to sing in school to learn the 50 states and the capitals of the states. They teach us. But songs also help identify us to a time or to a group of people. Like, if, you, if you've been to a high school reunion, and they play a particular song that was popular during your high school years, what happens? It's like you're transported back in time immediately to a different time in your life, to a different place in your life. Songs and music are powerful. Bono, the lead singer of U2, he said it this way, music can change the world because it can change people. So what does music and songs have to do with us coming together and singing in church? Well, before Bono knew that music was powerful, God knew. Music was God's idea. God created everything. God created us, and God created music. And he knew the power of music, 
And he knew the power that music would have over us and in us. He knew the power of song, that we would use songs and music to express our life experiences. He knew that we would use songs to express our beliefs. So he created music. It was his idea. And here's a cool thought. Did you know that God sings? God sings. Check this out. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. Think of that. God no longer rebukes us, but in his love, he rejoices over us. Corporately, he rejoices over us, but individually, he rejoices over you, over me, with singing. And even Jesus in the New Testament, in Mark chapter 14, 26, this is at the end of the, the, the Last Supper. He's up in the upper room with his disciples. He has just told them what's going to happen, and they still don't fully understand. He's just shared with them that one of them is going to betray him. And then it says this, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So on that very crucial night, after explaining all that he had just explained, it was important enough for them to sing. See, we find singing all throughout the Bible. Actually, the Bible has just nearly 500 references to singing and over 50 direct commands for us to sing to God. And one of the most famous books of the Bible is actually a song book. You know it, the book of Psalms. And in it, it's a collection of 150 different songs that were written by King David or other known or unknown authors. And many of them, sometimes we kind of skip over the title and we just go right to the words of the psalm. But if you go back to the book of Psalms and look at some of the titles, you'll see this written underneath the title. Like psalm, whatever the psalm number is, and then it will say, to the director of music, to the tune of. Have you seen that? And there's four psalms in particular that David uh, directed. He said, to the director of music, to the tune of do not destroy. Do you know that tune? I don't know that tune. But apparently, Do Not Destroy was a real popular tune in David's time. So he wrote these four different songs, and he said, since you know the tune already, why don't you sing this song to that tune? Like, we don't do that anymore. We'll write a song and then say, hey, let's sing it to the Britney Spears tune, you know, because copyright laws and all of that problem. But anyway, that's how they did it back then. But all of these psalms, all of these songs, they covered the whole gamut of life experience, and they covered the whole range of human emotion. There were psalms that were spe specifically written to celebrate a victory, psalms that were written to focus us on God's holiness, psalms that were written to celebrate God's, God's faithfulness, God's provision in our times of need, psalms that were written to focus us on the different attributes of God's nature. But they were all songs, and they were meant to be sung. Look at Psalm 47, verse 6. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. Four times in one short sentence, it says, sing praises. Kind of gives you the idea that we are meant to sing praises, right? And in the book of Psalms alone, the word sing or singing comes up 70 times, but the word praise or praising shows up 170 times. It was a very important word to the Jewish culture, to the people of Israel. Now, interestingly, there was seven different common Hebrew words that were all translated into our one English word, praise. 
And when someone, a Hebrew person would hear any one of these words or when they would read it or when they would sing that word, they knew exactly how they were supposed to respond to God, how they were supposed to praise. And I just want to share those with you quickly. The first one is tequila, not to be confused with tequila. <laughs> that would be a very interesting response, but tequila was singing. It was what we think about when we're talking about praise. It was singing out our praise. The next one was halal, which is where we get our, our word hallelujah or alleluia from. And halal meant to celebrate or to become clamorously foolish before God. Clamorously foolish. It reminds me of that story in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And he is so overwhelmed by the presence of God. He is so overjoyed by what is happening that he begins to strip some of his clothes off and start dancing, becoming clamorously foolish before God. And then yada. Yada meant to throw out the hands like a natural physical response when something big happens. Like when your favorite team scores a, foot, uh, a touchdown. You're like, yes! Well, when they saw this word, yada, the people of Israel, they knew that they were supposed to say, yes, God, you are amazing. You are mighty. It was throwing out the hands. And then shabak, similarly, shabak meant to shout. Shout in victory, to become loud or noisy. Now, some of you are beginning to get a little bit uncomfortable because maybe your personality is a little more subdued, a little more conservative in the way that you worship God, and that's okay. But some of the words were that way as well. Todah. Todah was also raising their hands, but it was more palms upward, more a sign of surrender or a sign of thanking God for things that he's given or things not yet received, raising their hands in expectancy. And then Barak, not the one you're thinking of, this Barak meant to, to kneel down as an act of adoration or an act of reverence. And then finally, Zamar. Zamar was very specific, and it meant to pluck the strings of an instrument. And Zamar, that when they would see that word or sing that word, they knew that they were meant to praise God through skillfully playing instruments. And that's why we continue these thousands of years later to sing, to raise our hands, to clap, to kneel, to play instruments. I mean, we've been doing this. People of God have been doing this for generations and thousands of years. But for the Hebrews, it was such a part of their everyday life. They loved to sing. The Hebrew people, they sang at the tabernacle. They sang as they traveled through the wilderness. They sang as they went out to battle. They sang as they came back from battle. They sang in feasts. They sang in festivals. It was just a, a, very much a part of their everyday life and a part of their culture singing. And then you fast forward hundreds of years to the New Testament, and we find the Christ followers in the New Testament still singing, but where they would do it changed after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because as the church moved out from Jerusalem, it became dangerous for them to meet together because they were under the oppression of Rome, and they were viewed as a cult, and so they began to meet in smaller groups in homes, but singing was still a part of what they did. But the, the change was not just where they worshipped, from Old Testament to New Testament, but it was how they experienced the presence of God when they worshipped. And this is crucial. I would love for you this week to take some time and, and go to the book of Hebrews and read through three chapters, chapter 8, 9, and 10 of Hebrews. And in those three chapters, the writer describes so well the difference between Old Testament worship and how they experienced God, and then now how we get to experience God after Christ laid down his life. See, 
In the Old Testament, it was only one man that could go and experience the very presence of God one time a year. It was the high priest. Now, there was a few times throughout history that God decided to supernaturally show up, like at the dedication of Solomon's temple. He surprised the people of God, and he showed up, and his presence was there in the temple, and people were overwhelmed by the presence of God. But typically, normally, it was only the high priest that could go into the presence of God because the presence of God was confined for, for their safety. It was confined to one place, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And that most holy place was separated from the holy place, the outer part of the temple, by a huge curtain. And the only one that could go beyond that curtain was the high priest. But at that crucial moment in history when, when Jesus hung on the cross and he breathed his last breath and he laid down his life for us, the Gospels tell us that that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in part from top to bottom. God did that. God did that. It was miraculous. And God did that to prove that the price Jesus paid was enough for us. It was enough for us to enter into the presence of a holy God. So we now have the privilege to approach God with boldness. Still in awe, we still approach him with reverence, but not in fear and trembling. That's why the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, we can enter the God's presence because of the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. So when we come together as a church, we do that. We enter his presence. When we come together as a church, we worship him, and we do so by singing songs. We worship, and we enter his presence. But why do we do that? There's so many reasons why, but I just want to focus on a few reasons today. The first one is this. Worship reminds us of who God is and what he's done for us, what Jesus has done for us. It reminds us of who God is because vision leaks. Even our vision of who God is leaks. I mean, from the last time that you were here, maybe you were here last week, from last week till today, life has happened, right? The good, the bad, the ugly of life has happened. And through the highs and the lows of life, our vision or our view of God becomes diminished. We forget. It's easy for us to forget. We become self-absorbed. We begin to focus on our own selves and on our lives. And when we come together and we begin to focus on God, we begin to sing songs, it reminds us of who he is. Water, you turned into wine. Open the eyes of the blind. There's no one like you, none like you. Into the darkness you shine. Out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you, none like you. When we sing these songs, it reminds us of who God's, God is. It reminds us of his power. It reminds us of his holiness. It reminds us that he is capable, that he is able. It reminds us of his initiative, that he is the king that reached out to us. And as we remember his goodness and all that he's done for us, we respond in worship. But also, worship encourages us. Have you ever come to a weekend service and you were discouraged? You had a tough week. You came and your emotions are down. I mean, we're emotional beings, so there's, we're not always on the mountaintop emotionally. You came in and you were really feeling down, but then something happened as you heard people around you singing. It wasn't even the song, maybe, but just the voices around you singing to God. It had a way of lifting your spirits, had a way of putting you in a better mood. And worship does that. Worship encourages us. 
But it's not only encouragement for our mood or for our emotions, but worship builds us up as people. That's why the Apostle Paul said this in Colossians 3.16, and he's instructing the New Testament church on how they should worship. He says, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. It's, it's interesting to me that he doesn't say as you teach and admonish each other through good messages and sermons. Now, good messages and sermons are a part of teaching and admonishing, but Paul says, no, we are all a part of this teaching and admonishing. As we sing together, we're teaching one another, not just us on the stage, We are teaching one another as we sing together. We are encouraging one another. We are building up each other's faith. We are spurring each other on to greater heights in our relationship, in our walk with Jesus Christ. So worship encourages us. But why else do we worship? Worship reorients us. It reorients us. What do I mean by that? Orientation is the relative position of me to someone or something else. Or it talks about someone's interests or attitudes. And praise reorients me. Praise reorients me. It reminds me that he is God and I am not. I had one of those moments this week. It actually became a wow moment. On Wednesday, I was here at work, and it had been kind of a stressful day. And I had a lot on my plate. And by the time I left here, about 6 in the evening, I was walking out to my car. It was already dark. And I was so consumed by me. I was so consumed by the stress that I was feeling about different things that are going on. And I was just stressed out. I got in my car thinking about me, 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 me. I pull out of the driveway onto Buck Jones Road. And right there, it felt like I could have reached through my windshield and touched the moon. Right in front of me was the moon, a quarter moon, shining brightly with Venus just below it shining. Did you see that? It was amazing. And in that moment, I felt like God tapping me on the shoulder going, hey, Doug, I did that. I thought of that. I'm big. I can handle your problems. And for me, it was one of those moments where I had to repent. I was like, oh, God. So often I become so self-consumed. Forgive me. You are big. You thought of this. You can handle my issues. And it was a, a moment of reorientation. But when life happens... We lose our orientation. When life happens, we can lose our moral compass, right? Maybe you've had one of the greatest weeks of your life. You got the promotion. Your kids scored the winning goal. No fights at home. No checks bounced. I mean, you're firing on all cylinders, and you begin to feel invincible, unstoppable. You begin to think, man, I am all that. And then you come to church, and we sing a song about the holiness of God, and you have one of those moments okay, maybe I'm not all that, but God, you are all that. It reorients us. Or the flip side of the coin is if you had a bad week, you lost your job, your kids are failing school, the roof is leaking, checks are bouncing all over the place, and you come to church, you drag yourself to church, and you're not sure if you even have the energy or the emotional energy to sing, but then you choose to sing. You choose to worship, and then we sing songs like, if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? If our God is with us, what can stand against? There's another song we sing that I I love. It says, our God is fighting for us always. We are not alone. We are not alone. And the words of these songs, they don't only remind and encourage us, but they actually reorient us. 
taking the focus off of ourselves and putting the focus back where it should be on God. So worship reorients us because far too often we base our worship on our feelings or our circumstances, but our worship should rise above. Our worship should rise above our feelings. It should rise above our circumstances because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God is unchanging, and our God is holy. It's based, our worship is based on who, who he is. He's a holy God, and he is worth my singing. He is worth my praising. He is worth my worship. But here's the great thing about God. Even when we come to him based on emotions, because we do, we forget all of this stuff. We come, we come self-absorbed, we come based on our emotions. I don't feel like singing today. God is so gracious, he is so loving that he still reaches out to us and he chooses to meet us where we are. He meets us at the point of our need. So we come with a need and he provides for that need. We come with insecurities, he reminds us that we are loved and cherished. We come with pain, he offers healing. We come with pride, he has a way of humbling us with his blinding perfection. We come in brokenness, and God has a way of putting us back together in his perfect wholeness. See, he meets us right where we are because he loves us where we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. So there's this kind of back and forth. There's this give and take aspect of worship when we worship together. Give and take. We're giving worship and he is giving something back to us. David Platt says it this way. He says, worship is the rhythm of revelation and response. It's the rhythm of revelation and response. The revelation is his part. The response is our part. And I love that quote because I'm a visual person. So when I, when I read that quote, it's like I saw this dance in my mind. And I was thinking, you know what? Worship is often like a dance. Me and God, we're dancing, or us and God. And God is the one who leads us. He takes the lead in that dance because he is the one who initiated worship. But as we respond, as we follow his rhythm, he reveals himself, we respond in worship. As we respond, he chooses to reveal more of himself. And we're like, wow, God, that's so cool. And we find out more about him and the songs we sing, or just he speaks to our heart, and we respond more. And as we respond more, he reveals more. It's like this unceasing rhythm, this ever-going dance in worship. And that dance, our worship, reorients us. So worship reminds us, worship encourages us, and worship reorients us. But if we're not careful, it can begin to sound like worship is all about us. But we know it's not. We know that our worship is focused on God, but also I want you to know that worship is about others. Because worship is missional. Our worship is missional. And what do I mean by that? Well, God has given us as Hope Community Church a very specific mission. To love people where they are and to encourage them to grow in their relationship with Christ. And ultimately, we want them to experience life in Christ. We want to draw them to Christ. And Jesus wants that as well. He said in, in John chapter 12, verse 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, the next verse goes on to say that when he said this, he was talking about the way that he was going to die. He was foreshadowing that he was going to be lifted up on a cross and die in that manner. But when we come together as a church, when we come together, we exalt Christ. When we come together and we exalt what he has accomplished on the cross, people are drawn to him. People are drawn to life in Christ. 
Uh, I heard this great story from a friend of ours here at Hope, and they were sharing with us that a few years ago, they had been reaching out to a single mom in their community, a friend of theirs, and inviting her for a while to church. And for a while, she hadn't come, but after them bugging her enough, she said, all right, all right, I'll go, you know, one of those. So she came, and she hadn't been in a church service for many, many years, and it was kind of overwhelming for her at first. But they noticed during the singing time, during the time of worship, that instead of her kind of looking at the stage or focusing on the words or what was happening, she kept staring at this other young lady just across the aisle, just down from her, and she was watching her worship. And so our friend kind of leaned over to her and said, hey, is everything all right? And she said, oh, sorry. I know I'm staring at her, but I can't take my eyes off her. What she's experiencing seems so real, seems so genuine. And little did she know that the woman she was watching was also a young single mother who had gone through terrible circumstances in her own life, but she had experienced the life-changing grace of Jesus Christ. And her worship was drawing this other lady to God. Because worship is missional. I can't tell you how many times over the years that I was a worship pastor or worship leader that people would come and tell me stories like that. Uh, they would say, you know, I was drawn to God to... I was drawn to a relationship with Christ partly through the worship of the church. I remember one guy saying to me, you know, it, it wasn't just the messages or reading the Bible that drew me to a relationship with God. He said, I started coming to this church over a year ago, and I was an atheist. I didn't believe in God. He said, but over the, that year period, when I finally gave my heart to Christ and surrendered my life to Christ, he said, there were so many moments in our worship times as a church that I, I was in torment with myself because my mind was saying there is no God, but I was watching people worship around me, and I couldn't deny that what was happening was real. So our worship can draw people to God. And, you know, rarely when people would tell me stories like that did they make any comments about the way I was leading worship or about the band or how good the band was or how good the singers were because at the end of the day, it's not about the band or singers. Yet we know the power of music, and music can help lead us there. But when we come on a weekend, it's not about music alone. It's not just about the music. The worship leader, the band, the lights, the sound, the video, all of the volunteers here at Hope, everything that we do is done with the goal of creating a conducive environment for us to connect with God, for us to worship God. So it's not just about putting on a concert so that we can feel emotions or about singing songs so that we get pumped up. It's about giving the opportunity for us to worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus said this to the woman at the well in, in John 4, 23. He said, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. And our spirit is that part of us that is unique from all the rest of creation. It's that part of us that's created in his image, in his likeness. It's our heart, not our physical heart, but it's our emotions, it's our feelings, it's our soul. And God desires for us to worship him with that part of us, but he also longs for us to worship him in truth, meaning we don't shut off our brains when we begin to sing because the truth needs to be a part of our worship. So when we worship in spirit and in truth, we're doing it with our whole being. We're doing it with our voices as we sing. We're doing it with our minds as we're thinking about the words and pondering the words. We do it with our emotions and we do it with our bodies as we stand, as we clap, 
and even as we raise our hands to God. We worship in spirit and in truth. So the ultimate goal of worship is to lift up the name of Jesus, to lift him up because he is worthy. He's worthy of our worship. And when we do so, when we lift him up and we do it sincerely, we do it authentically, we do it in spirit and in truth, we are changed as we worship. And that change becomes contagious to those around us, becomes contagious. Jesus loves his church. The Bible says that we are the bride of Christ and he loves the church. But he also loves people outside of the church. His heart breaks for those who have not yet been able to experience his grace. So our worship can draw them to the grace of God. And it's not just our singing worship, but as our whole life becomes sacred acts of worship, as we begin to worship God with every aspect of our life, our life becomes increasingly more missional. And that's God's desire for our life. If you have been to Kid City Live recently, you've heard this quote, and I love this. It says, worship is not just singing loud, it's living loud. It's not just singing loud, it's living loud. So when we come together, sing, and sing loud. But when we leave this place, we go back to our regular lives, let's live out loud, let's live loud for the glory of God. So why do we worship God the way we do? There's, there's so many reasons, and we've only touched on a few today, but there's just one more thought that I want to leave you with as we close. And it's this, I had this thought this week, Again, kind of one of those wow moments. I was driving to or from work. It was a sunny day. I was just in awe again of the colors of the fall, of, of God's beauty, of his creation. And I was listening to another epic film soundtrack. One of my favorite Pandora stations is Lord of the Rings. So I was listening to this epic music, and I was, I was watching God's beauty, and I was just overwhelmed by God in that moment. And I had this thought, our God is epic. Our worship should be epic. So I want to encourage you this week, I want to challenge you this week to worship God in a way that's epic, that's larger than life. Get outside of your comfort zone. And we have planned our service today in such a way that we're going to give you the opportunity to respond and worship. We're going to, in just a moment, we're going to sing another couple songs. And I want to ask you to stay to the end of those songs. And I want you to respond in worship. If you don't sing regularly, it's not your thing, I encourage you, sing. Here's the good news. By the time your voice leaves your mouth and gets to the ears of God, it's perfect pitch. So don't worry about your neighbors, okay? The worship is not, the singing is not for your neighbor. It's for God. So sing out. But if you get immersed in the emotion of the music or the music, open your, your eyes and look at the words, ponder the words, worship in truth. But I want to challenge us to worship God in spirit and in truth. And as we prepare to worship, I want you to watch the screens, watch this video. We worship because God deserves it. Uh, he deserves our respect and our honor because of what he's done for us. We worship him because that's, that's what we're here to do. I think uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 sums it up nicely. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And uh, if you're always conscious of that and put God first in your life, I think that is living a life of worship. We worship because of who God is and what he's done. 
So it's, as we sing, as I sing, as I lead, it's remembering back all those things that despite my sin and my depravity, it, God sent His Son to die and to cover those sins and wash of white snow so I get to stand before Him and worship Him for who He is. Worship can be exhausting. Uh, for me, I think worship is giving everything you have to God, uh, mind, body, and soul, just all your energy to God. And it can be an exhausting feeling, but it's a really good feeling to be tired because you gave all you have to God. So our service is on the weekend. It's a little more structured, a little more formal, and uh, they're designed to keep people comfortable, but still you know, share God's truth and allow them an opportunity to meet with Him, not just sing or just stand there, but be an active participant with each other and also to sing to God. In the context of, of worship, as far as music, it looks like uh, people, wherever they're comfortable with it, it's raising their hands high in the air and uh, on their knees before God, that's what it could look like. If it's people that just are just singing and, and just even just reflecting in song, just eyes closed. And a lot of times I look out from the stage and there's people that are just eyes closed and that's their worship. When you pull up to Hope and you have volunteers helping park your car and then you're greeted at the door with a smile from another volunteer that genuinely welcomes you and then you walk into an auditorium where nothing can happen without an unbelievable amount of volunteers and then you have imperfect people on stage helping lead other imperfect people to an intimate moment with God. To me, that's worship and at Hope, it's authentic. Uh, I think the misconception is that you have to be a really great singer to uh, worship or a really great musician. And so that's, if you don't have that, that there's this barrier sometimes that happens. And so my hope would be as we think about worship and as we sing songs that we can kind of let those, those barriers or those worries that we have about not being a good enough, whatever it is, musician or singer, or that other people are going to hear us, but just really with reckless abandon as, as a congregation, just lift our our voices, lift our hands in, in, a, in a shout of worship of who God is and make a joyful noise to the Lord in the same way we would in those other contexts of celebrating what those people are doing, celebrating what God has done. And I grew up Catholic, so did my wife, her whole family, my whole family, and I know it was difficult for me just to change the way I worship, you know, but to not be afraid to maybe raise your hand sometimes or sing out even if you think you can't sing well. Just sing out. The Bible says make a joyful noise to Him. So feel free, open your heart up, and don't, don't pay attention to what's going on around you. Just think about God and focus on that and, and open up your heart.